Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Joining me in center ring today is author, best-selling author, Anne Gold Bouchot, PhD. Anne is an author of a book that we're going to be discussing today. It's called The Parent's Guide to Bird Nesting, a child-centered solution to co-parenting during separation and divorce. It is my opinion that co-parenting is the hardest thing the hardest part of divorce, as if the sadness and the stress that the spouses have to undergo is not enough, dealing with co-parenting puts an amazing strain on people. And I think Anne's book is an attempt to lessen that strain. And for those of you who don't know all the different styles of co-parenting, this is one of them, and this is the one we're going to focus on. So first of all, Anne, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And thank you for writing this book. So, Anne, there are a variety of co-parenting styles. We hear these numbers being bantered about. Two, two, three, four, three, inverted pyramids, one week on, one week off, and you'll never see the kids again. So there's all of these different co-parenting styles, but the one that you wrote an entire book on, bird nesting, or as we know it also, nesting, is the most interesting. Talk to us about what it is, why it's unique, and why you chose to write about it. Um, Great. I think bird nesting is a wonderful option for parents who are getting divorced and are concerned about their children. So I'm a psychologist and all my years as a psychologist working with families, what I saw was the trauma of the divorce on children and that if the parents could find a way to reduce the trauma for the children, the long-term outcomes would be much better. I myself nested with my ex-husband back in 1994 and um, learned a lot in the process because really had to make it up as we went along. In uh, about five years ago, the publisher, Simon & Schuster, came to me and asked me to write this book because they had seen a blog I had written about it. There is no other guide to bird nesting out there for people who want to nest. So maybe I need to explain what nesting is. Nesting means that the children stay in the home and the parents rotate in and out on and off duty according to some kind of schedule that they've agreed on. So it could be a two, two, three or a week on, week off schedule. But the important part is that the children don't go back and forth between two homes. They stay in one home. Their lives are not disrupted. Um, The parents have some time to learn to be single parents. And they also have some time to try to sort out what they're going to do about their marriage, if they're going to reconcile, if they're going to divorce. It gives a slow startup to the divorce, and it's definitely a softer softer startup for the children. So in the concept of nesting, or and you taught me this when we did our pre-interview, on the East Coast, they call it bird nesting. On the West Coast, we call it nesting. 
<clears throat> but what it is is the children stay put and the parents move in and out. So, and that means that there has to be a second home, an apartment, something that both parents use when they're not on duty in the family residence where the children are living, correct? Not necessarily. There are a lot of different arrangements that can work and support a nesting arrangement. During COVID, especially the first year, there were a lot of people that wanted to separate but couldn't. And I worked with many couples to set up a nesting arrangement where they both stayed in the house, but they sectioned off areas of the home where they they could be. They might have had to rearrange children in order to free up another bedroom. I worked with some people who were able to use um, an unused space like an attic that they kind of built out or a basement. Um, There was a show on ABC a couple of years ago called Splitting Up Together, and they used the garage as the place where the parents came uh, when they were off duty. If people can afford it, each parent having a place to go is better than them sharing a place because it just reduces the stress that much more. So when I nested with my ex, I rented a room in a shared rental. He had developed another relationship and he stayed with his girlfriend. I've worked with many people who stay with friends or families when they're off duty. Um, I worked with one man who was able to sleep in the church that uh, there was a sofa bed that his pastor allowed him to use. I've worked with people who set up their offices with fold-out sofas. So there are a lot of different ways, um, either in the home, outside the home, sharing an offsite like an apartment or a studio apartment, um, or having two separate places. Uh, in other words, being completely separated when they were off duty. If you're going to nest within the family home, as COVID forced people to do, what do you do with the movement of each spouse within that home when they're off duty versus on duty? It's definitely more stressful. In other words, they need to have very clear agreements because they're going to want access to the kitchen. They're going to run into the children. They're going to have very, they need to have very clear written agreements about how that's going to work. It's also a little more confusing for the kids to know that both parents are in the home, but one of them may not be available. So in some cases, um, parents are a little more flexible and they're willing to uh, let the kids come and go to each parent during, even when that parent is off duty. Other parents have had very rigid schedules where the off-duty parent could only use the kitchen during certain hours, could only use the shower during certain hours, had to be out of the way when the on-duty parent took the kids to uh, school or daycare. Um, so there are a lot of, um, it depends really how flexible the parents are, but the Basic, the core of making this work is having very clear, specific written agreements. And boundaries within those. And boundaries, yep, and boundaries. So, Anne, to underscore your point that living within the same domicile could possibly work if conditions force that, my ex-husband, my former husband, 
who was very, we were both very amicable during the divorce. That was back in 1993. He still keeps in touch with me and he actually likes the fact that I'm working in the field of divorce. He sent me last week an article from the New York Times titled, did you see it? Um, Kinder, gentler, nobody moves out divorce. Yes, I saw that. So go ahead and explain what the article said. If you don't remember, I I have it in front of me. I just started laughing. I said, Clark, this actually sounds like marriage, not divorce. Yeah, it sounded to me like they had something like a duplex and the kids could go back and forth at will, which is wonderful. And I have worked with people who've been able to do that. It really comes down to I think the reasons for the separation, if the reasons that the parents are splitting up is that they have too much conflict, then they're going to need more space from each other. But if the reason that they're having having their divorce has nothing to do with conflict, but maybe has something to do with um, money, um, differences in values, differences um, in, in how they handle money, maybe sex, um, these kinds of differences may they may agree to divorce because it's not working for either one of them, and they're more likely to be amicable when they set up their nesting arrangement. the The goal of the nesting, to be clear, is to eliminate conflict between the parents because we know that conflict is what damages kids most. And so whatever it takes to reduce or eliminate the conflict is going to benefit the kids in the long term. So if you if you structure the arrangement around a way to eliminate conflict between the parents, it's going to be successful. Okay, so this is the concept I have a hard time understanding. Now, you've done nesting, I haven't. The, the thing that confuses me and I have a hard time with is reducing stress and conflict between parents. Well, one of the issues, and it's very basic, our, our day-to-day logistics of living, we get annoyed with the way somebody takes care of their space versus the way we take care of ours. We get upset with duties, washing, taking the trash out, simple things that have to be done on a daily basis. Um, we get annoyed with that. But these things don't change. If you are physically still sharing the same space, even though you may not be there at the exact same time, you're still having these same topics dealt with, aren't you? Well, if you don't have a good agreement, you might. Most of the agreements that I've helped people structure, and this is very well laid out in the template in the book, um, have clear agreements about not leaving dishes in the sink when you go off duty, about making sure that the bed linens are changed. Uh, Some people put in basic pantry items that they want to make sure are in there when the on-duty parent comes comes in. Um, Also, a written checklist of how the kids are doing so that the transition is more seamless between the parents. But yes, again, the things that drove you crazy when you're married now you have an agreement that when when the, your husband goes off duty, he picks up his socks and puts them in the hamper. He doesn't leave them lying around for you to find when you come home. This can go terribly wrong if the agreements aren't clear. So um, in the book, I wrote about a woman who came on duty into the home and found a used condom in the bedroom. I remember that. Yeah, that did not go over well. 
Um, so again, a clear agreement about dating and new relationships and not bringing new people into the home. These kinds of agreements, if you can predict what could potentially happen, you can structure an agreement around it. You can't predict everything. So you have to also include a way to resolve these things as they arise. Maybe that's meeting with a therapist. Maybe that's sitting down together and working it out. I think when these things arise, they're learning opportunities for a better agreement. And so these people might have been able to say, well, okay, we didn't figure this out ahead of time. We need to now agree that there will not be dates brought into the home. I would love to focus on this a second because in all of the, in all of the divorces that I mediate or file for, and there are children, and one of the parents has already started a new relationship. This brings into discussion a world of issues. The children quite often don't want their parents seeing somebody else while they're still trying to figure out how they're going to deal with the divorce. And in a lot of the media, in, in a lot of the settlement agreements that I write, the parents construct language about introducing new partners to the children and when sleepovers can happen. And now everybody's in the family home. When I was reading about this, it was the first time I really thought about it in the context of, context of nesting. And that is, oh my gosh, you're going to bring somebody into the family home that you're soon to be a uh, former spouse is coming to and the kids are here. Can you please address the seriousness of this decision? It, could, it would be a very bad decision to do this for a lot of reasons. One is that the kids are not ready, of course, and they could very well sabotage the relationship because they're not ready. So that is a, a big reason um, not to bring kids into a new relationship too soon and certainly not in a home that you're sharing with your soon-to-be ex. I think if you have a relationship going on, you can pursue that when you're off duty and you can do it at the other person's house. It doesn't have to be in the family home in the presence of the children. The children shouldn't even know that you're involved with someone else. They don't need to know that. They're not ready for it yet and they will probably push back against it. It takes, I think the research says it takes a year, possibly two years for kids to adjust after a divorce is over. So you can see that doing, introducing the kids to a new relationship early could have um, really a bad effect on children. You know, that's really good to know. It takes one to two years for most children to... Um, to understand, segue, and move forward emotionally to accept the divorce. Because isn't it true that at the beginning stages, if there isn't a lot, if the nesting wasn't preceded by a lot of arguing, if it was a marriage just that just silently kind of disconnected and the kids don't have that, oh my God, thank God there are two homes, or oh my God, thank God the parents aren't in the same house, I can't take the yelling anymore. So if you don't have that type of divorce, I can well understand this this enormous confusion while the kids are taking one to two years. And I'd like you to spend just a little bit more time on that, educating people, but how devastating this can be for the kids. 
if they meet somebody too soon. Yeah. In the home that they're living in and that their other parent is coming to. Right. Um, The home is not just a financial asset. It's also an emotional asset. It's full of family memories, right? So if the kids are staying in the home, part of the rationale is that their lives are not disrupted. It still feels like home to them. So if now a parent is bringing in a new relationship, it's going to feel wrong to the children. It's not going to feel like their home. As long as their parents going in and out, on and off duty, it's a, it's a transition to solo parenting, but it still feels like the family home. Does that help? Yeah, it does. And if this person that one of the parents is involved in is really serious, and this looks like it's going to be a good next relationship, possibly leading into marriage. Now you're looking at that next step called step parents. Mm-hmm. You know, so your new significant other may end up being a step, a step parent. And you are really setting yourself up for an unsuccessful step parenting relationship, possibly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a family that I interviewed in the book, um, and I interviewed all three adult children as well as the parents. They nested for six and a half years. And during that time, one of the parents did remarry, but they set it up so that, that the new relationship was not in the home until the children were out of high school. They managed that. I think it had something to do partly with the husband's job. He traveled a lot. So when he was off duty, he was traveling. Mm-hmm. So the new relationship and then the new wife could be in her own place, but not in the family home. Okay. In fact, this, this family even nested when the kids came home from college. They went back to the nesting arrangement. Perhaps they didn't want to get divorced. What do you they, think? No, I think they, I think they did. They were good friends. They were able to stay yeah. friends. But that way, the children didn't have to choose which house to come home to at Thanksgiving, right? Or which yeah. they should stay with over spring break. They didn't have to make that decision. They, they had their home. You know, a few weeks ago, I interviewed a woman uh, from the Midwest. Her name was Molly Wilder. Molly's a divorce coach, but she had her own divorce experience. And it wasn't so much nesting. They had seven kids. But it was the way they transitioned, the way they mended their own relationship he got into a relationship before she did, but they put a blended family together that would make the Brady Bunch stand on their its ear. They even do Christmas cards with every family member, all the children from both sides. I thought that was really, really cool. Wow, okay, that's here's, wonderful. Here's what else I think is really cool, though. Your book. You have in your book, in every chapter, a worksheet and a what I call a think sheet. You know, you, you question people, you have them fill out these questionnaires and then they can exchange them along with worksheets. And it's in every single chapter. Why did you do that? I wanted this guide to be very practical. I wanted people to be able to know whether they could potentially have a successful nesting arrangement. I also want people to know that even if they only nest for a couple of months, that's not a failure. That's still a good transition for the children. I wanted them to know what kind of agreements 
they need to have and learn from the experience of many, many other people who've had nesting experience. That, that When I nested with my ex, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just sort of making it up as we went along and we made a lot of mistakes, but they, I learned from all of those. So this guide is a very practical guide for people. I think it's a very useful guide and it will give language to the spouses about how to talk about nesting and how to talk about the separation, how to talk about the children. Well, that is something I wanted to go to. So thank you for bringing this up now. You talk about communication being ultimately important. And, and isn't it that, it that the case in all of our relationships, but especially in this one? So when you're going from marriage to divorce, your, your language, your communication changes to a certain extent from a very intimate language to a little bit more formal, wouldn't you say? And then you bring up some exceptional points. You, talk, you definitely talk about keeping it respectful, but you really spend a lot of time on good communication skills, and then you go to good enough, always showing people how not to be so hard on themselves. So please talk about communication skills and how to develop better ones. So as a psychologist, most couples would come to me, their primary complaint would be they can't communicate, right? You've heard that over and over, I'm sure. So uh, clearly to nest and to share a home, they are going to need to communicate. And with some basic ground rules, like listening to each other, like not sending emails that are going to be inflammatory, using Bill Eddy's um, temp, kind of template standard that I like, which is to keep emails brief, informative, firm, and friendly, that if they can self-monitor, that is going to improve communication between them. In my work with couples, I've some in really highly inflamed couples, I've had people send me the emails before they send them to their spouse to make sure that they, and, and to use that as a sort of teaching opportunity so people can learn how to tone down their emails and keep them neutral. They, you know, unlike being married, they are now sort of business partners in the business of raising their children. So a lot of things they don't need to talk about, but they do need to be able to talk about their kids and they do need to be able to talk about the home if they're sharing their home. So some of the uh, material in the book gives, the, gives people sort of checklists or templates to communicate at the time of transition whatever's going on with the children and any issues regarding the home. There's also in their um, budgeting templates to help people develop a budget because so much of communication between couples is about money. And they do have to work out some agreements about how to fund the nesting and depending on whether they reconcile or not, how to fund whatever the next steps are. You know, I, I, something else I thought was interesting that you had talked about in the book, and that is maybe you're not 100% sure that a divorce is the right thing or even what is called a legal separation, which is still a formal filing. You say that if divorce is a consideration, but not 100% positive, that maybe nesting 
will allow you to get some clarity of thought. It will keep you in the home, but it will give you some separation at the same time. Is that what the intention was in the uh, let's see how this works variety of nesting? That sounds something like a trial separation. I like to think of that as possibly a therapeutic separation where the nesting separates them but brings them together perhaps in therapy to to work through the issues um, perhaps they might start dating each other again getting to know each other again starting from the beginning i think there's a whole section in there about if you're interested in rec- reconciling you don't just end the nesting there's some transitional steps to make sure that the reconciliation is going to work because you don't want to put the kids through another separation you want to make sure that this is going to be a positive step in the right direction. Can you give us one or two of those steps? Of how of the reconciliation? Um, yes, and or the trial. I, I think you said two things in your The life. therapeutic separation? Yeah. It, well, I think when parents separate, but they're not sure they want to divorce, and actually I have to say that only about, 13% of people um, who separate end up reconciling. So it's not a huge percentage and nesting doesn't guarantee that. I want to make sure that people understand that. But if if you're separating in order to cool things off and you think you want to reconcile and you're both interested in reconciliation, then the steps would be starting to work with a therapist, starting to resolve whatever the issues were that had come up that led to the separation starting to talk about what the future is going to look like. How are the children going to be cared? What changes are are each of the spouses going to have to make to make the relationship work? There might have been things like infidelity to work out. That's pretty common. Um, And so that requires some intensive counseling and healing, and that might take some time. But, you know, people where there's infidelity very often really are ambivalent about divorce because of their children and because perhaps of financial reasons. So taking the time to work with a therapist, maybe work with a CPA, work, get some professional help to restart the relationship if that's what they want to do. I like that you said dating again, uh, start dating again. I, that's really cool. Um, because one of the one of the nice things about dating is that you live in your own homes, so you live separately, and there's that mystique that uh, we all love, and then of course we love moving in with one another. So I, that just sounds really very sweet. There's one thing that you said early in the book, and then I kind of put something else that I read later in the book together with it, and. I wanted to explore this because I think it's one of the most, one of the hardest concepts in divorce and co-parenting. And so the quote I pulled from page 31 in your book was, the question is whether you can set aside your own feelings for the sake of the children. And then later on in the book on page 188, you talked about an emotional vocabulary. And I kind of put those two things together. First, let's go back to you're in your own pain. 
this is very difficult. You certainly never thought you were going to get divorced. Maybe you're the first one who's getting divorced in your family. Maybe your religion, your culture doesn't really support it. Yet you feel that this is possibly the right thing to do. How? do parents put their own feelings aside to be able to put the children first? Yeah, it's not that people aren't going to have feelings. Of course you're going to have feelings if your marriage is unwinding. But you don't want your children to carry the burden of the divorce or the burden of your emotions. That's where things go wrong for kids. That's where the damage happens. So part of the, um, in the early part of the book, I think I'm, justifying nesting as a way to protect children from long-term damage. Parents have to be committed to that, and they have to be committed to doing the work. And part of that work is setting aside their own emotions in order to make decisions that are truly the best for the children. Children need two parents, unless there's very big issues with one parent um, with mental illness or unmanaged addiction or something. Parents need and children need both parents. So if parents can, usually parents agree that they love their children. They may not agree about anything else, but they do agree that they love their children and they do agree usually that they want what's best for them. So that is kind of the entry point for putting your own feelings um, to not aside, but taking them to a different place unloading with friends, family, therapists, or whatever, but not letting that emotion bleed into the families, particularly into the children. As you were saying this, for the first time, I started thinking, you know, if parents go into this exercise, and, and I completely agree with you, get professional help, we, we, we need an outside person mm -hmm. to help direct us so that we don't remain very internal to ourselves and lose perspective. But as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, this, is, this sounds very freeing, though. If you can go through, A, the very difficult exercise of divorcing and, and, and what a lot of professionals call the emotional divorce, if you can go through the emotional divorce, which are those seven grief stages of divorce, and now you're bringing in a professional to help you understand how to not only process your own emotions, but deal with your children's fears and emotions. Right. It, it sounds like it could be freeing, and you could absolutely use this in other situations throughout your life. Yes, yes, of course. Another reason to do that is that, you know, while we know that 40 to 50% of first marriages end in divorce. Second marriages, are, those divorces are at a much higher rate, about 65%. And third divorces are even higher, like 73%. Isn't that something? So yeah. It is. So what that tells you is that taking the time to work through your own emotions and to understand your own contribution to the breakdown of the marriage that sets you up for a more successful second or third marriage. So that's, that is a, a big reason to, to seek professional help. Of course, the biggest benefit from my perspective is that you protect the children. You don't put the children in the role of ally or confidant or messenger or spy. Those are terrible roles for kids. Um, and if you can keep the, your kids out of those loyalty binds, 
they're going to do a whole lot better in the long run as well. And you talk about nesting deal breakers and you mm-hmm. kind of alluded to one earlier, bringing a, a new partner into the home um, at all, not a, <laughs> or too early and not at all. What are some other nesting deal breakers? Well, I think there are two ways to look at this. There are the deal breakers that tell you you shouldn't even try to nest, right? Those are the ones where the conflict is so unmanaged that there's no way that parents are able to control and self-manage, self-regulate enough to set up a nesting agreement. So those are the deal breakers at the beginning. And I think the self-assessment worksheets in the book help people identify is this what's going on and is this something that can be resolved? The deal breakers during um, during a nesting period are things like, um, well, I don't even think of them exactly as deal breakers, but if one parent is in a new relationship and really wants to pursue it, they may decide they want to end the nesting at that point. Um, there's If people can't keep agreements, they work out these agreements and then they can't keep them, that's a deal breaker because making and keeping the agreements is going to build trust between the spouses, the parents. And if they consistently don't keep their agreements, the trust is going to break down even more. And it usually starts at a pretty low level anyway. So making and keeping agreements are the most important thing parents can do to rebuild some of that trust. So that's an, that is another way that things can break down. Sometimes parents just get tired of going back and forth. Um, you know, we make our kids do it, but um, parents don't like packing up and moving in and out. And of course, it's not that much fun, but um, you're protecting your children from having to do that. They didn't choose the divorce, right? Yeah. But if they decide to end the nesting because they can't stand this in and out anymore, at least they will have some empathy for their children's experience. And if their children forget their homework at the other parent's house down the road, they'll be less likely to be angry with them or frustrated with them. So I do think it gives them the empathy that they need for, for later. I think that's such an excellent point because before I understood about nesting, I've been doing uh, divorce for about 10 years, mediating and filing. And you learn from people who come in your office. They bring in new concepts that, you know, maybe the professionals haven't thought about or dealt with yet. So I often wondered, my gosh, what must this be like for children on the, especially on that crazy two two three or two three two, oh my lord! I can't imagine, um, unless you were meant to travel for a living, <laughs> I can't imagine children who have a hard time organizing their stuff anyway, depending on their age, could function and manage. And, and so I love that you brought bring that up. Now you know. From your own experience, if this doesn't work out for you, parents, now you better understand what your kids are going through. Mm -hmm. And that same schedule that would be so difficult when kids are going between two homes could actually work pretty well in a nesting arrangement, depending on the age of the children and, you know, whether it's actually practical for the parents, if it's realistic for them to do it. 
Um, with young kids, the kids need more frequent contact with each parent. So a two-two-three schedule when they're nesting with young kids is going to work pretty well. You don't want to ship a four-year-old back and forth every two days, but when they're in their own bed, in their own house, and the parents are coming in and out, you know, the kids are, are, are more stable. As kids get older, they can go for longer periods of time. And, you know, my kids started at a week on week off schedule because that's what my ex-husband really wanted. I wasn't happy with it, but when we threw in a midweek dinner, we made it work. Um, but they, my kids were already um, almost teenagers. One of them was a teenager. So it seemed to work. Now, I wanted to ask you, when you created your nesting arrangement um, way back when, had you heard of anybody doing it? Or did you feel that you were creating something new? It, it existed. We had been in marital counseling for like 12 years, a long time. And our, we finally realized this just was not going to work. So our therapist said, have you thought about nesting? And all she knew was the kids stay in the house, the parents go in and out. That was it. She knew nothing more than that. But we really liked the idea. So it did exist, but we didn't know any more about it than that. There was no guide out there. We didn't know anyone who had done it. So yeah, we had to figure it out as we went. Fortunately, I think my ex and I both really did want to prioritize our children's well-being and not have them carry the burden of the divorce. And divorce is still hard for kids. Even if parents nest, it's still hard for kids. Mm-hmm. But this way, it's, it's a little bit easier for them, I guess. Understood. Thank you. Let's talk about parenting styles for a couple minutes. Because in a good marriage and everybody's living in the same, under the same roof, parents have different parenting styles. They come from what their youth was like, what they experienced, and then as adults, what they think is right. So what do you, what are their options? How do they deal with parenting stuff? You know, TV, video games, everything. Right. So, um, yeah, even in really good marriages, parents have different parenting styles depending on how they were raised and their values. Um, when people divorce, that can often become much more of an issue. Um, I look, p- parents will often say to me, we want to co-parent, but there's no clear bright line about what co-parenting means. I think of parenting and co-parenting as a continuum. And at one end is the co-parenting where the parents really pretty much agree about everything and communicate frequently and work things out. They agree about chores and screen time and all of that, diet and all the things that parents might argue about. And at the other end of that continuum are the parents who don't agree about anything. In fact, they don't even want to talk to each other. They find each other intrusive or controlling. And that's more parallel parenting. And it's kind of um, basically putting up a firewall between the two parents, even nesting, because believe it or not, my ex and I had more of that kind of arrangement where we communicated almost not at all. So most parents fall somewhere between those two extremes. Um, They can co-parent about some things, but there are some things that they absolutely want to be independent on. They want to parent the way they want to parent. I think 
part of the task in divorce is accepting what you have control over and what you don't have control over. And my experience is that the person closer to the parallel parenting end of that continuum is generally the one who prevails. They're much, they're generally more um, rigid, basically. Uh, But over time, that can change. And as the divorce progresses, as people heal and recover, that person may move up the continuum more toward co-parenting and then the two parents are more able to work together. But, you know, generally it's not the extremes. It's usually somewhere in the middle. And if people can kind of figure out where that sweet spot is on the continuum that works for each of them, then they can talk about that. Would it be a fair compromise, the C word, compromise, that if you do have some specific issues within the parenting styles, one parent has one or two issues, the other parent has one or two issues, that they could each trade off and you get to have your one or two issues satisfied, I get to have my one or two issues satisfied, something like that in the world of compromise? Well, as you know, in divorce, everything is negotiable, right? So that's one way people might negotiate. But there might be some uh, issues. I worked with a um, couple once that was nesting, and one parent was determined to raise their children as vegan. Mm -hmm. And the other parent, there was no way that was going to happen, right? So neither one of them was willing to compromise on that one. So that's an, that, that particular issue drops toward that parallel parenting end of the continuum. But there might have been, and there were many other areas that they did agree on, you know, getting homework done, playing in sports, bedtimes, and, and those sorts of things, they, they agreed quite nicely. It's so hard. Um, bedtime video games, the types of movies children can watch. And then it becomes a little bit more serious when there may be a dietary issue that one of the children has leading to an emotional issue, leading to school issues. And one parent simply doesn't want to recognize it. Now, this is serious stuff. Mm -hmm. And the other parent says, no, wait a minute, we can't ignore this. Look, this is harmful to our child. That's when professionals might have to step in. Right. It can get very complicated with children with special needs. Um, And in the parenting plan, you can agree on certain things that are sort of predictable, like screen time or the industry ratings of video games and and movies and so on. But if something comes up where you really can't agree and both people feel strongly in the parenting plan for the nesting, um, I always encourage people to have a backup plan. Like before it escalates to the level of, of conflict, which is what we're trying to avoid, if a disagreement, we don't want it to arise to the level of conflict because that's what hurts kids. So if there's a disagreement that they can't resolve, then they have a backup plan, which is usually to see somebody like a therapist, a mediator, possibly someone else who could help them come to some sort of an agreement. And that's in the parenting plan. So again, the whole purpose of the parenting plan and the nesting is to protect the children from conflict. Let's talk about 
talking to our children. So, so there are two hard conversations when divorce is starting to be discussed. There's the hard talk between the spouses themselves. Somebody has to bring it up first. That's difficult unto itself. Then you have to talk to the children. So could we explore this a little bit? What are your suggestions in how to tell, tell the children? Of course. And this is probably the hardest thing that parents have to do in their divorce is talk to their children. Um, I, you know, I write a blog for psychology today, and that particular article about how to talk to the children has hundreds of thousands of views because that's what people are searching for. How do you tell your children? So these, my recommendations are you tell them together, the kids all together and the parents together. And there's a reason for that. You don't want a child to carry a secret while they wait to tell the other child. It's the first conversation of many. So the first conversation has to be choreographed carefully, I think, by the parents. They have a message to give the children that's not blaming. It's we have decided. We think this is the best thing. Um, and using the we word a lot, right? And um, letting the kids know what's going to change and what's going to stay the same. That's important. What kids want to know is how's my life going to change and what's going to stay the same. And then there are going to be a lot of things you don't know yet. When you talk to your kids, you probably haven't figured out a lot of things yet. Um, are you going to have to sell the house? Are you going to have to move? Um, there are all kinds of questions kids might have. Um, are they going to have to go to a different school? So those questions that you don't know yet, I always counsel people, don't make promises you might not be able to keep. Excellent point. Yep. But say, you know, we haven't figured that out yet. There's that we word. We haven't figured that out yet. But as soon as we do, we'll let you know. And that's okay to say that. You don't have to have all the answers when you talk to your kids. Oh, that's so nice to know. I mean, that's kind of a get out of emotional jail free card, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. you have to know everything up front because you just don't know everything up no. front. The kids do not need to know why. They don't need to know if one parent has had an affair. They don't need to know if a parent has a sexual dysfunction. They don't need to know why the parents are divorcing. They they really don't. They just need to know that they're not happy and that they think that it will be better for the family um, and certainly better for them if they can separate and reduce the tension or the conflict. Parents will sometimes say, well, we never fight in front of the kids. But kids know when there's conflict because they can feel it. They can feel it in the way their parent hugs them. There's no way to hide conflict from your children. They have the most sensitive radar and they can pick it up. So saying to them, you know, you probably, you may have noticed that things have been tense or that there's been some tension in the house and we think this will help. And I think it's important to let the kids know that all feelings are okay, that they could, they could be angry, they could be sad, they could, be, they could just shut down, and all of it is okay. They can ask questions at any time. And the last piece, I think, in talking to the kids is reassurance that everybody's going to be okay. They will be okay. Yes, this is going to be hard. Yes, nobody wanted this. We didn't plan for this. And we are all going to be okay in the end. You said something earlier in our discussion today 
about looking at what your part in the dissolution of the marriage was. And I always say that we have to put that mirror of self-reflection up to us so that A, when you get farther in the book and to the point you just made, you don't blame the other parent. Right. Yep. It's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's important. Most, by the time we get to divorce, there's very often a triggering event. And that might be something like an affair or, you know, some other kind of event. And it's easy to blame that person then for, for the entire breakdown of the marriage. But it is really important to look at how you got to this place and how did you get here and what can you learn so that you don't repeat the mistakes? Absolutely, for the future and certainly when you're in the middle of the nesting relationship. So you go through the emotional divorce, you look at what your level of responsibility was, possibly there's an apology or a level of forgiveness given. And now you're telling the children, neither of you are blaming one another. You're certainly not explaining the reasons, are you, right, for the divorce? They don't need to know any of that. But, and here is something that a therapist colleague uh, of mine explained to me, and I'd love you to spend some time on it for a second. When you're talking to the children, make sure they don't think it's their fault. Of course, yeah, that's right. Why would they even think that, Anne? Well, because children are very egocentric, especially younger children. They're very egocentric. They, they might think if I hadn't had that tantrum, maybe they wouldn't be getting divorced. Or, you know, if I was better at picking up my mess, maybe I, they would. Yes, they need to know they are not responsible. They didn't cause it. They can't prevent it and they can't fix it. It's really important for them to know that. The other thing is that sometimes kids will try very hard to figure out who's to blame or who's the victim or who's the most vulnerable and needs their support. And so it's important also to let kids know that their job is to keep on being kids and that they, it's not their job to figure out who to blame or who needs their support. That's where kids can get caught in loyalty binds, loyalty conflicts. And so they need to reassure their kids that they're going to be okay. They're going to take care of themselves, the parents. They're going to work out whatever is going on between them. And the kids don't need to worry about them. They need to focus on being kids. You mentioned a couple things a few minutes ago that may be considerations. Um, One of them was selling the house. So there are a handful of concerns that children seem to have in every video I've watched and books that I read talk about. Would you just explain those handful of concerns that children have in terms of how the divorce might affect their daily lives? Sure. Kids very often ask if they're going to have to change schools or if they're going to have to move, if they're going to have to sell the house. You know, very often the house is the biggest asset, and so that is a concern. Um, And they also want to know if they're still going to see their same friends. They might ask, am I going to see you every day? They want to know what the schedule is going to be. Um, They want to know how often they'll see their parents. And they 
if they know other children whose parents are divorced, they're going to ask questions that mirror that situation. If they see um, their friends struggling with something in their parents' divorce, am I going to have to go to court? No, that was oh, oh I didn't even think asking. about that one. Yeah, that's an adolescent said, am I going to have to go to court and decide which one of you I'm going to live with? You know, that's a terrible thing for a child to have to do or to even ask. So reassurance, that is a key word. Right. And in most cases, that doesn't happen. I mean, we do have those situations where it does. Yeah. But um, it generally, in, in most divorces, doesn't happen. What if they do have to sell the house because they, there's a lot of equity in the house. They simply need it. And unfortunately, they cannot buy within the school district that they're in. I mean, that's a big deal. So you're in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. And these are big issues because it's so extremely expensive for housing uh, in, in, in California. So what do you do if, unfortunately, you simply have to uh, move to a different school district? And could you address also with that these weird issues that I listened to with my, when my niece and nephew were uh, in undergraduate, when, before they uh, graduated from high school, that you can live somewhere else and somehow qualify to go to another school district, how do these things work? I think it depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. Um, in my area, you can do intra-district transfers. So you may, so you even if you're if you're within the same school district, but but you want to go to the school that you that you moved from, but it's in the same district. There are ways to get intra-district. Um, transfers, but I think it really depends on the jurisdictions. Um, I, I also think that um, if the, if you know that the house is going to have to be sold, that preparing the kids is really important. Um, that you don't just sell it without telling them, <laughs> um, and you give them time to prepare, and you give them time to say goodbye to the house, and you you involve them to some degree in the transfer in the transition you maybe help them set up their new room at the new house um, that sort of thing in the in the case that i talked about earlier where they nested for six and a half years in that situation the dad actually bought mom out of the house um, but they nested in it but it gave her the money to get her own place she got a condo or something and so, and he was, a, he traveled for work. So he was off duty traveling. So he didn't need another place. And she came from her place to the home. So even though it was his home, they continued to nest in it, which I thought was a remarkable agreement. No, that is so very fortunate that they were able to do that. So the house has to be sold. They're going to be in a different school district, different uh, friends that they will meet. What could parents do to keep the kids connected to their old friends, their neighborhood friends and their school friends, at least for a year or two until the kids transition into a new group of friends? Yeah, that's there again, this involves parents' commitment to doing that. So depending on how far they have to move, if one parent can stay in the school district, then the children could stay at that school. But if they both have to move out of the district, then parents will 
have to make sure that they arrange play dates. And, you know, when parents have less time with their children because they're on some sort of schedule where they don't see their children every day, it's sometimes parents have to struggle with, do I really want my kids to go to a play date when they're supposed to be with me and I miss them and I want to see them? So these are things that parents have to struggle with. And again, putting your kids' needs ahead of yours. It's tough. That's so true. That is so true. And this has been so very informative. This has been great. I really appreciate it. I loved reading the book. I highly recommend this book to anybody. Again, the title, and it'll be in the show notes, but again, the title is The Parent's Guide to Bird Bird Nesting, a Child-Centered Solution to Co-Parenting During Separation and Divorce. So you can easily get this on Amazon. Yep, and Barnes and Noble and almost everywhere else. No, this was great. I'm so happy that Simon & Schuster called you and asked you to write this because this is the biggest treatise on this concept that I have read and heard about today. So this is extremely thorough. And those worksheets, I mean, those questionnaires, uh, they're they're just perfect. They're just perfect. So, Anne, um, now that (laughs) Zoom has opened up the world to everybody, if people would like to see, oh, wait a minute, we're going to get to if people would like to see you. One thing I wanted to bring out, I totally forgot, support groups for children. Where do you sit on it? And do you know of some, are there any resources on your website for that? Um, there's a resource called Kids Turn in Northern California, and I'm not sure how widespread they are, but I know there are multiple counties in Northern California, Kids Turn. And they have groups for children and parents. They put the parents in separate groups. Um, They're not in the same group with each other. Um, I know there's um, another similar organization in Southern California, Sandbox something. Um, I remember hearing about it. Um, I think that some schools have support groups and some local, uh, I think calling local schools and local therapists for resources would be a good thing, a good resource for people. I agree. Okay, so back to how can people get in touch with you? So you can go to my website, which is uh, com. It's D-R-A-N-N-B-U-S-C-H-O.com. And you can contact me through my website. Um, I'm happy to do consultations by Zoom. I'm not seeing people in person these days for obvious reasons, um, but I'm happy to do consultations by Zoom. Excellent. Thank you. I'm, and, and you will be great at doing this. I really appreciate that you came on the show, and Thank you so very much. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. This is a good conversation. And thank all of you, each and every one of you, for joining every week. We do a lot on co-parenting because out of all of this, our children are our most important assets and should be coveted and dealt with uh, in such a way. And, And these are the most popular topics anyway, so please share this with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't already. You can reach me through my email address, judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com. Judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com. Enjoy your week, and as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, 
and cherish your children above all else.